I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. One Kings three, verse three through twenty-eight. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of his father David. Only he sacrificed and offered incense at the highest places. The king went to Gideon to sacrifice there, for that was the principal high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gideon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I should give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept you for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David. Although I am only a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people, so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people able to discern between good and evil, for who can govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you and no one like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor all your life. No other king shall compare with you. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statues and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your life. (laughs) Then Solomon awoke. It has been a dream. It had been a dream. He came to Jerusalem where he stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He offered up burnt offerings and offerings of well-being and provided a feast for all his servants. 
Later, the two women who were prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Please, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. We were together. There was no one else with us in the house. Only the two of us were in the house. Then this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. She got up in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your servant slept. She laid him on her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, I saw that he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, clearly it was not the son I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living son is mine and the dead son is yours. The first said, no, the dead son is yours and the living son is mine. So they argued before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. While the other say, not so, your son is dead and my son is the living one. So the king said, bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. The king said, divide the living boy in two, then get half to one and half to the other. But the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because compassion for her son burned within her, please, my lord, give her the living boy. Certainly do not kill him. The other said, it shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide it. Then the king responded, Give the first woman the living boy. Do not kill him. She is his mother. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God And so today we arrive at the fifth commandment, which, which if we're honest, is just plain odd, right? Do you remember what the fifth commandment even is? The Lord says, honor your father and your mother that you may lengthen your days on the land with which the Lord your God has given you. Out of all the things, all the things that God could include in a list of 10 commands, a list of commands that are to be a blueprint for a better society, honoring mom and dad just seems to be the the strangest, most ABC family thing for God to be concerned about. And the Bible really offers very little elaboration on it. Other than the vague promise of lengthening your days, we, we hear almost nothing about how we're supposed to, to honor our parents, or when we're supposed to honor them, or even why we're supposed to honor them. And, and, and the few biblical stories that do talk about parents and children usually focus more on rebellion than on honor. There's the story of Abraham who abandons his father's home and religion to start something new in the hills of, of Cana. And, and it's inspirational. And, there, then, the, and then there's others like King David's son Absalom who, who challenges his father's rule and hurls ancient Israel into a, a civil war, which is just wretched. Why on earth? What on earth does God seem to be concerned about? What does, does God seem to be getting at here? 
the fifth commandment just seems like something of a mystery to us. While the Bible has very little to say about this, the ancient rabbis would have had tons to say on this, overflowing with with, with Confucius-like ancient aphorisms and stories. A person who has food in his home but does not give honor and food and sustenance to his father and mother is viewed by God as someone who enraged, who engaged in murder all his life. This is what a rabbi taught. Someone who engaged in murder. What a claim. So let me get this right. If I grill out or or whip up something in my Instapot and I don't invite my parents over to eat it with me, it's the same as starving them? That, That feels a bit extreme. Or if I just want a quiet Thanksgiving without having to debate politics with my dad or decide to do a Thanksgiving just me and Chris and Olive, just the three of us this year, am I, am I getting this straight that it would be like mar- murdering my parents? The, those ancient rabbis hyperbole much. The rabbis just had this extreme way of teaching the fifth commandment. Another rabbi tells the story of a Roman officer who, who passed up a business offer that would have earned him 600,000 gold dinars because he was unwilling to disturb his sleeping father under whose pillow lay the key to the safe where he kept his, his precious gems. Another rabbi, Rabbi Tarfen, was renowned for going so far beyond the call of duty to help his aging mother that one time when, when her shoe strap tore as they were walking in public, he put his hand under her feet and let her walk on his hands all the way home. And when she, troubled by her sons fawning over her, asked the other rabbis to tell her son not to honor her this much, they answered that even if he were to do this a million times, he would still not fulfill the duty prescribed by the Torah. The ancient rabbis had much to say about honoring our fathers and mothers and went to these extreme lengths in service and storytelling to still fall short of the command as they saw it. But, but, but the extremity of, of, of the rabbis' traditions, while showing us how seriously they took the commandment, they still don't, be, they don't go beyond the hows and into the whys. Why is honoring our parents so important? so important that it makes it into these Ten Commandments. Like, what is going on here? By including this in the Ten Commandments, God saying, honor your father and mother, God making this the fifth commandment in this blueprint for for a just and a good society, God is saying that in the creation of this society, our memories will be core to who we are and who we will be. At the core, the fifth commandment is about memory, of which our parents often hold the key, right? Think about it. Memory is this this anchor for our souls. It is this thing that we hold on to, the proof that there is a reality to who we are that is grounded in the past. In, In the experiences of our childhood, our memories are us. And our parents are, are at the core of them. We can never overstate our parents' influence on who we are. Sometimes it seems like our whole lives are nothing but a series, this long series of decisions in their light. And it is our memories that instill within us that wisdom 
something that no book, no teacher can ever replace that guides us through our lives. Which brings us to our scripture today. Did you hear it? King Solomon, who reigned in the second half of the 10th century BCE, is the figure in the Bible most associated with wisdom. Soon after Solomon's ascent to the throne, God appears to him in a dream and asks him, what is your wish? And Solomon, passing up on the more obvious wishes, like for for riches and for power, instead asks for one thing and one thing only. Did you hear it? He asks for wisdom. And as the story progresses, we are told that Solomon's wisdom exceeded that of all the children of the East Country and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than than anyone. And people would come from miles and miles and miles away to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon's life takes about half of 1 Kings and a large section of 2 Chronicles Yet, of all the accounts of his wars and his wives and his wiles, there is only one story presented as explicit example of this so-called wisdom. And it's the story read for us today. Did you hear it? Soon after that night that he had the dream, two prostitutes come before King Solomon asking him to help them settle a dispute. And these two women who live in in the same brothel, they each gave birth within the same span of a few days, and one of the babies has died. And and one of the women now claims that the other took her living child and replaced it with the dead one in the middle of the night, and the second insists that hers is the living child. Like, something I don't want to deal with. Please do not bring me these problems. (laughs) So after hearing each side and considering the problem, King Solomon in all his wisdom, makes this shocking pronouncement. Bring me a sword so that we might divide this living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. And and of course, the one with the living child was willing to give the child away rather than, than see it divided. And of course, the one who had lost her child was willing for the child to stay with the rightful mother rather than see it divided. Despite the the apparent cruelty of Solomon's famous trick here, this story is meant to teach us something about wisdom. To render his judgment, Solomon required this profound sensitivity. The sensitivity to the connection between a woman and her baby. The sensitivity to to the overwhelming envy that that would bring the guilty woman to prefer the child's death over his return to his mother. Solomon displays this acute sense of how people work and his employing this in a a judgment like this one demonstrates before the nation of Israel that he had within him the wisdom of God. Wisdom here, though, is, is not that of Aristotle knowing the casual relationship between events. That's what Aristotle said it was. It is not that of Plato. Plato taught that it's the knowledge of ideal forms of things. It is not scientific knowledge or or philosophy or metaphysics or meditation or technical excellence. What, What King Solomon's story of wisdom teaches us is that true wisdom, the wisdom of, of God, 
is knowing the inner workings of the heart and being able to tell right from wrong. That's why there's this, this crucial turn of phrase in the stories of Solomon. Did you hear it? Solomon asked God not for a brilliant mind, but for an understanding heart. Later, we are told that God gave Solomon very much wisdom and an understanding and that the, the greatness of his heart was like the sand that is on the seashore. The seat of wisdom, the Bible teaches, is not in the head, it's in the heart, which, which also happens to be the seat of our passion and our desires and our mercy. To say that wisdom is in the heart is to say that the, the abstract thinker and, and the plotting researcher and the calculating mathematician are all far, far from being wise in and of themselves. The mind processes and, and accumulates information, but it is the heart that uses knowledge to respond to reality and, and react with the power of sentiment and judgment. But by focusing on the heart, the Bible is suggesting that true wisdom is, is not in our thoughts or ideas or in our beliefs. That true wisdom is in our intuitive responses to human realities. And, and so where does this kind of wisdom come from? Well, this question takes us back to the fifth commandment today, to honor our father and our mother, that, that wisdom comes first from our parents, or it should. For all they gave us in terms of food and clothing and shelter, none of these shape our souls as much as the thousands of moments when a parent teaches us how to be good to others. While other moral teachers, whether historical figures like, like Socrates or, the, or, or professors and preachers of today, engage our minds with doctrines and rules and, and may inspire us to, or even scare us, <laughs> with the, it, it is our parents, it is our parents' wisdom that is, that is not shallow and not fleeting like these. The former can be cast off. With, with others easily replacing them, right? But our parents, they, they carve their teachings, better or worse, into our hearts. And they do so in three main ways. The most important is, is through this moral conditioning, training our, our reflexive responses to human situations more than our conscious thoughts about them. We, we are not born knowing how to react when someone affronts us or lies to us or shows us kindness or needs our help. We don't know this innately. We, we have to be trained on how to respond here. And no matter how many sermons we hear about right or wrong, none of them have the impact of rewards and punishments and judgments handed down over the years of our childhood. The first is moral conditioning, but the second way they chisel into our hearts their teachings is by their example, for better or worse. When, when we're young, we, we imitate our parents' behavior without even knowing it. Not, not just their patterns of speech and their tastes and their interests, 
but also their, their basic habits of relating to other people, right? And politeness and consideration and, and tolerance and urgency. Their example becomes a comfort zone for our behavior. If we have seen them staying up late with a sick child or seen them caring for an ailing parent or, or seen them returning things that don't belong to them or giving to charity or protecting their family or, or reflexively helping those in need, we will have a much easier time doing the same ourselves. And of course, this is true also of negative examples. If our parents deceive or betray their friends or neglect their families, we become far, far more comfortable with behaving similarly no matter how many times they may have told us never to do such things. And then finally, our, our parents instill this kind of moral wisdom in this third way through stories. Maybe we, we could call it narrative parenting. It's all those tales they, they tell us about where we came from and what we, that more expansive we, that includes us and our parents and our ancestors had to go through in order to get to this moment in time right now. Which brings us back to this notion of memory. This notion of memory at the heart of the fifth commandment. The Exodus story is that central story for the Israelite people that gives them a sense of, of what that, that kind of heart wisdom looks like and feels like, and becomes for us our story too. But the fifth commandment recognizes that it's, it's not the only story worth telling, that each of us carries stories of earlier generations, of, of a past filled with struggle and challenge and hope, and oppression and kindness to others, stories of how our grandparents arrived on our nation's shores in, in abject poverty and, and built a successful business from scratch and, and how another shaped the, shaped the horrors of war in a far-off country and, and, and braved the winter on a long trek to safety and how another enduring slavery or over overcame an abusive husband or overcame an abusive mother or fought in our nation's wars. In the fifth commandment, we learn that our parents have given us, for better or worse, in, in such stories, an inner, an inner platform for our moral fiber. They have given us countless Exodus narratives, each offering the lessons of redemption, each one deepening our moral instincts and showing up um, and showing us what we are capable for, what we are capable of. Even those absolute, devastating, worst moments of their parenting that, that etch scars on our hearts we're still processing today. Parents are not always right, but their wisdom through, through moral conditioning and example and story have left a mark on us. 
and it is from our mothers and fathers and their fathers and mothers and their great this great cloud of witnesses that came before us and will go on after us that we get the first tools we need to relate to our human world. They alone give us the background that we use to interpret our experiences and challenge fashionable beliefs and judge the claims of political pundits and literary artists and religious leaders and moral philosophers or anyone else who tries to tell us about right and wrong. The wisdom of our parents forms the first basis of our moral dialogue with all the world. And so those rabbis, those rabbis' wild descriptions of honoring our parents can only make sense in light of this. We honor our parents because we celebrate ourselves. To honor them, to ease their lives and publicly show respect, these are the expressions of that celebration. For, for we know that the best parts of who we are, we owe to them, as different as we may be now. And when the very worst parts of who we are, we, we also owe to them. When they have left scars too deep for words or repair or relationship even. The fifth commandment does not mean for us that we honor them by, by, by honoring those who have done damage we can't make sense of or come back from. But the fifth commandment, it's not sending us into relationships that are, that are toxic or wounding. It is saying that for better or worse, we are bound to them by our memory. We are bound to our parents by our memory, which contains the keys to understanding who we are. And to preserving and and orienting and reorienting our deepest instincts of right and wrong and passing them on in the world to those in our circle and our charge. And that memory is a gift. It's a gift for it shows us who we are and who we can be. I offer this to you in the name of God the Father and the name of Christ his Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to, to use this next song as a way of prayer into this God of the fifth commandment. My words now be wise to follow them. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a card. Take the name of Lord your God in vain. Another Saturday to keep it holy. There is peace at the table.